Welcome to the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast. Today I'm joined by Brian Woodrow. Brian is the Senior Design Director at Thomas Pierce, a Toronto-based interior design company known for its bespoke commercial and residential spaces. They have designed some of North America's more iconic residential developments and private mansions. He leads a team of creatives and designers on projects that range from multi-million dollar homes and expansive retreats to luxurious residential high-rise towers and private condos. Brian, welcome to the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast. It's great to have you with us. Thank you very much. I appreciate the call. So I wanted to start, as I always do, and just ask you a little bit about yourself and how you would describe what it is you do for work. Well, that's the... um... That's the question I ask myself every day, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, I am an interior designer. I, I have been for 30 plus years. And I've, uh, I've been fortunate. I've had the opportunity to work uh, around the world. I've done work in Spain. I've done work in Russia. I've done uh, extensive work in the Caribbean and the United States. And, uh, of course, um, in Canada, here in Toronto. And I'm a senior designer and chief implementation officer, if you will, of uh, Thomas Pierce Interior Design in Toronto, Canada. And we specialize in high-end luxury residential living. Large-scale interior design is how I put it. Uh, The other side of that coin is that we also have uh, quite a number, a large number of full condominium towers that we uh, design. They're under development in Toronto. Um, You may know that Toronto right now is a a mecca for construction. It's undergoing a revolution. We're building a tremendous number of residential uh, units and housing throughout the city. And Thomas Pierce has a big part of that. But at the same time, um, we're doing very many, very large uh, multi-million dollar homes. Um, they range in size from uh, 10,000 square feet to 55,000 square feet and, and up. And um, that's really where we um, shine, I suppose you could say. Uh, and that's what we do here uh, on, a, on a daily, regular basis. So it's, uh, it's an interesting position to be in. Um, from my point of view, every day is different. Every day brings a new challenge, and every day brings with that challenge a new opportunity to explore and create. And, and that's really the, uh, the bit of joy that uh, I have and share with uh, a very talented team of people. You talk about these quite considerable sized houses, um, big we call them blocks of flats as opposed to condominiums um, or residential buildings. I was wondering, what's the most exciting thing um, about what you do? And you, I mean, you've said you've been in the business for quite a long time. You've worked around the world. What also drives you? Well, I, I think that um, the the driver is the everyday opportunities that arise. Uh, every job is unique. Um, you you can't say that there are similarities between them and. Uh, and, and frankly, we, we try to go out of our way to make sure that they are unique. So that brings um, its own set of issues, uh, which come not just from the creative design and drawing process, but right down through to the implementation process. So there's a lot of um, 
interaction between our design team and the constructors, the the general contractors, and also very importantly, the trades, the the boots on the ground, if you will, that uh, are tasked with uh, building the uh, the things that we've designed. And with so much going on in Toronto, uh, in particular, finding a good trade, someone who understands what that line on that page means and how it has to behave, is a challenge. So that um, that can take um, a different form each day. <clears throat> Regular site visits, uh, discussions, sketches on site, um, sometimes pulling a line on the ground so that you can get the curve of an arch correct and everybody understands it. There's a lot of coordination. Um, that's what comes with the territory of, of custom work. Give an example of your design process, an example of how you approach a project that, you know, that's commissioned? Well, that, um, that process uh, is, is indeed a formula, and it's not an unusual formula for designers. Generally follows the same flow, which is uh, understanding uh, the client's wants and needs, um, understanding the positioning that they're putting themselves uh, in, what do they want to project. Um, If that's a a luxury home, then we have to look at that individual and understand them, sort of um, get into their psyche, if you will. A little bit of psychology at play sometimes is who is this this person that I'm speaking to and um, what are they seeking? How do they want to live? Do they know? Are they coming to us because they want us to craft an environment for them? But to take it right down to the basics, to get to that stage of of creating that that special environment, it starts with very basic pen to paper and a plan. And nothing can really happen until you have an understanding of that space planning. You've got to know really what it is uh, on paper. What are the parameters? What are you designing? What are these rooms? What are these spaces? What is the flow when you enter the space? Um, Are you coming in um, and looking at this from a homeowner and you're arriving down uh, in your lower level parking garage and you're coming in through a family entry on a daily basis? Uh, or are you parking uh, in the driveway and coming in through your main front door regularly? Or is that just reserved for guests? These are the kinds of very basic questions that uh, that we start with. And you can see quickly with just that, that simple uh, basic example of two different ways to approach um, an environment that someone's going to live in. I'm interested to use the term craft and environment. And when we think about luxury, you know, I often use the word craft, but craft has many different connotations and different interpretations. And I was just wondering if you could, you know, interesting to hear your thoughts on what that means for you, crafting an environment. Well, we um, we take a lot of pride in creating a unique environment. Um, Thomas Pierce does have a style, if you will, a a look that uh, people seek out. We're we're known for an international feel to our design work. It's uh, clean, it's crisp. 
But um, our design pendulum swings between um, somewhat traditional right through to highly contemporary. So when I say that we're crafting an environment, we're taking an approach that is bespoke for each individual client and digging into their wants and needs and designing from that basis of how does this person want to live? What are they looking for? Who do they live with? Uh, are they a single individual? Is it, uh, is it a couple? Do they have children? Perhaps they have uh, um, other family members that live with them. Um, maybe this is an empty nest situation where the family's grown and they're uh, a couple moving on to a different sort of lifestyle altogether but they still need to have the opportunity to have a family visit. All of those conversations and then some um, go into that basic planning, which then allows us to step into that idea of crafting an environment unique to them. And just as uh, a craftsman, which are becoming rare, would take a look at an item and finally tune that workmanship so that it's carefully created and done, we do the same thing with our interiors. Every inch is looked at. Every corner is looked at. Every little bump out is looked at. Um, every piece of molding is handled and called out. So when I say we're crafting an environment for someone, this isn't uh, you know, an off-the-shelf uh, house A, B, C, D offered by, um, you know, a, a suburban developer. This is a unique environment that is designed for um, an individual that they can proudly say reflects their personality. And then we can stand back with some satisfaction and say, yes, look what we created to satisfy someone's lifestyle wants and needs. And that's how we approach everything that we do. So that's interesting. So I just want to pick up on a couple of things, hopefully not too contentious. So when you're designing a house for somebody, I get the, you know, that very much bespoke approach where you customize, you know, everything. You're talking about very much the detail that goes into creating that space or crafting the environment. When you are working with multiples, so with a condominium, for example, block of flats, the approach is, I'm assuming, somewhat different because uh, you are creating multiples of the same thing. How does your design approach differ when you are um, working in two very different environments, albeit they are residential environments? Well, that's, uh, that's a very interesting question, to be honest with you. Um, there are similarities. The differences tend to be scale. So working on a 40,000 square foot home is very different than working on a 600 square foot condo. And despite that, there are some things that need to be taken into account. The entry. When you step into that small space, 600 square feet or less, what happens when you arrive? Is there a place to put your coat? Is there a place to take off your shoes? Do you have something to set your keys down on? Is there a mirror as you're leaving to look at yourself? 
what happens at that arrival and or departure point. Then you step into the space and um, these, uh, these apartments, these condominiums um, need to be equipped with a kitchen. They need to be equipped with a bathroom. And there are some basic minimums that need to be handled in that environment. No matter the size of the unit, you've got to have a kitchen that works. And despite everybody's best attempts, it's hard to get down to uh, less than a 10-foot run of a kitchen and have proper appliances and a decent space to cook and, and to live. And again, despite space, it's hard to get down to less than a 5-foot by 8-foot bathroom as a three-piece, you know, whether that be a shower and a tub or, and then a toilet and a sink. So those are the very basics that need to be worked into a space. If we're looking at a condominium environment where there is for a uh, development, there's um, a much larger program at play. We have to take into account the structural and mechanical needs um, of what's holding that building up. Some of these stories, some of these uh, buildings are 55, 60 stories. And um, you've got to take a look at the basic architecture and structure that's set in. And that could make a number of the units different. You have 10 units per floor. There may be six that are the same, and there could be the other four that are completely different. That's in a tall tower. If you look at what has become uh, a little more regular now in the city is uh, what's known as a mid-rise building. In an infill situation or on a uh, less than main street, you have a step-back building, a mid-rise of maybe 9, 10, 12 stories, but the building terraces back. There's a retail level, and then from there, it steps back. When that building begins to step back, the very nature of the architecture and the structure to hold it up impacts on the suites on each level. And instead of having, as you would in a tower, let's say six or eight uh, units that are identical and two that might be different, in this case of a multi-story building, you could end up with a different floor plate and different units on each level. That provides its own unique challenges because now you're not just planning in a rectangle or a box, you're planning around multiple structure and mechanical issues. And if I put all of that aside for a moment, my job and my team's job here is to ensure that despite the inherent potential oddities of that space, you're still walking into an environment that feels like your home. You feel welcome when you step into your entrance area, if it's not actually a foyer. It makes sense where your kitchen's laid out. It's got access to, let's call it the great room, because oftentimes you're living in an environment that's enclosed with the kitchen. It's open concept. You've got light. You have enough light to be able to live comfortably. You might have an opportunity to step out onto a balcony or a terrace. You'll have a bedroom that is separated in some fashion from the living area, but feels like it is indeed um, separate rather than just a door and a wall. Bathrooms, closets, and storage are so important. So we take our luxury design sensibilities from our large, large homes, and we try to bring at least that basic flow into the smaller uh, units. 
I don't know if that answers the question for you. Yeah, it's interesting because I think, um, you know, I live in London on the River Thames and um, not very far from me there's a development and I've been in there to see the apartments. And you're looking at apartments that are upwards of a million pounds, typically a one-bedroom apartment, but they all look the same. When I think about luxury, I think about, you know, something that is not produced, not mass produced. I, I just wonder about the luxuriousness of the space. But what you're saying makes, you know, it makes absolute sense in that, you know, you're concerned about the experience that the the person who's engaging in the space has and you apply the same principles no matter what size the space is. Well, that is correct. Um, and and really, that that idea touches on probably the key point if you're going to discuss luxury. You know, when we start to talk about luxury and luxurious environments and luxurious materials, uh, we have a little bit of a different philosophy here about that. Um, I maintain, and I have maintained for years, and um, I maintain that luxury is not fine materials. Luxury is not fine furniture. Um, what luxury is, is space and volume and light. That today is the true luxury. The greater the space and the volume you have, the more access to light, a view. That's luxury. Everything else that you would do in a space that contains space, volume, and light is applied finishes. And any applied finish, if it's handled properly, can be viewed as luxurious. You could take sheet aluminum and make it look fantastic if you consider the design carefully enough. But if you've got the right space and some nice height and some light, then you can really create a great environment. So the smaller the space, the area, the volume uh, of of a environment, the trickier it is to make it luxurious, and and that's where the challenges come in, right there. And 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 as you described, you know, a a million pound flat uh, in London uh, is probably comparable to a, a condominium here in Toronto, and um, it's really all about what are you going to do in that space to make it. Um, unique to make it feel luxurious. So that's going to be driven by budget availability and space. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, I'd be interested in that, that idea of um, space as a luxury, because I, um, I, I believe the same thing and it's not necessarily a physical space. It's just space, mm -hmm. which is a luxury. Yeah. I think, I think it's interesting what you were also saying about materials, that the luxury is not in the material. It's how you use the material. Mm -hmm. That's, that's quite correct. You know, um, <clears throat> we've, we've got access to virtually any luxurious material. That's, uh, that's just part of it, you know, whether it's, um, whether it's a marble slab or an onyx slab, uh, leather, uh, wool, felt, uh, velvet, um, fine veneers, all of those items are available and, and they're available to everybody. And no matter really what the budget is, there's, there's always something that you can, you can apply. But having the ability to step back and be allowed to 
create something special with any of those materials and, and, and um, develop a, a design that um, creates a sense of specialness when you walk into a space. That's where the opportunities to define luxury come in. And, and as I said earlier, uh, you know, sheet aluminum can look beautiful if you do it right. Um, and if you choose, um, if you choose a design that's appropriate to the space and the lifestyle of the person you're working for, uh, any material can be appropriate if handled correctly. We've got a, um, a look and feel that resonates, I think, with our clients, uh, whether they be, um, whether they be from the development and builder community or whether they be, um, individuals who've, uh, who've seen our work and come across it and said, oh, hey, gosh, I like that. What can we do? And despite every one of them being different, there are elements of similarities through them. And I think that that's just our notion of editing, uh, taking our style and knowing when to uh, add a little more spice or, or edit, pull back on something to just get it right. And we spend a lot of time doing that. We, uh, you know, we create views of every space that we, env we envision and we have to walk our, our clients through those. And as we're doing that, before we present it to the client, we spend hours looking at this, uh, flipping these views around, creating little details that go with it, um, literally crafting an interior, um, even if it's just simple, we're trying to get it to set just right. And sometimes it's just a matter of moving a line an inch or two to get it that way. And I know that might sound over fussing, but it's important to us to, uh, to just have it feel right. You've mentioned craftsmanship a couple of times. And I was just wondering, for me, craftsmanship's incredibly important in, um, when we define luxury, I was just wondering what your thoughts were on that, because you also said there are not that many craftsmen around anymore. No, there's not. Um, as, as I mentioned earlier, you know, Toronto has been for a few years now in a building boom. And that has brought um, workmen trades uh, from around the world, quite frankly. Uh, to work in Toronto. And the pool of trades is stretched thin. Uh, there's a lot of construction going on. We, we Thomas Pierce, have 30-some-odd towers on the undergo right now, uh, as well as, um, oh gosh, 15 large homes. And each one has their own problems. But if I look at the pool of people to draw from to create the things that we do, there's only... Um, a handful of mill workers, Finnish carpenters, painters, dear God, are harder to find, plasterers that get it, that have that touch. Many of them are older. Um, many of them are old world craftsmen. Um, many of them don't have anyone interested or willing to learn what it is that they do. Everybody's off uh, learning something else these days. 
And the lament that I hear regularly from uh, the numerous project managers and GCs that I work with is that we can't find anybody to do that. We have to wait. Um, yes, we, we've got someone, but he's not available for a couple of months. So true craftsmanship, uh, somebody who knows how to do a proper level five finish, for example, on a wall in a dining room, is harder and harder to find. Um, you you can get and 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 you know I hope nobody takes this the wrong way, but let's just say that you can get anybody to paint a wall, but it's hard to get somebody that can paint a wall properly. It's difficult to find a good finished carpenter who knows how to have two pieces of wood come together and meet seamlessly and stay that way. It's very difficult to find um, a good plumber, to be perfectly honest with you, that can understand, appreciate, and help solve a problem in a custom shower where there's multiple uh, jets and there's multiple shower heads and there's a steam unit and all the valves need to be set up correctly and properly. And um, we don't often just take stuff off the rack. We, we create systems, so we need somebody that can understand that. So all of those things um, get in the way of finishing a luxury job. So when you can find someone who can pull that off, let's say, they're gold and they're becoming rarer and rarer. We're fortunate that we do have a few that we can draw from. And, um, you know, there's, this is where the balance comes in. If we, if we look at our private homes, that's where the... Uh, freedom to create luxury exists more often uh, rather than the luxury condo towers, different market, different level of expectation, different budget allowances. Um, but at the end of the day, you're still creating an environment that's got to look good. If it's so difficult to find craftsmen today who are able to do the work, it's probably even more difficult to find craftsmen who are able to do the work, but also to constantly be updated with new material innovations, different kinds of polymers that might be used in um, the construction of walls, baths, fixtures, fittings. Well, definitely, definitely. And, um, you know, the whole notion, again, of what is a luxury finish, um, <clears throat> sometimes something is luxury because it's rare polymers and resins um, casting casting resin is uh, is not something you can find in every street corner working with uh, plexiglass working with glass is again not something that you can find in every street corner so we consciously seek out uh, workshops that um, do items like that you know we we work with a, a terrific um, a glass team that uh, has the ability to do absolutely anything with glass. Um, fixtures, chandeliers, sconces, pendants, um, sculpture. And we have yet to find anything that they can't do for us. So we like to have the opportunity to bring custom glass elements into play, for example. That gives a little bit of life and some sparkle to, uh, to a room. At the same time, um, 
we have uh, a team that uh, is very, very good at casting, molding, forming. And they too can do absolutely anything in, in plaster or Fipon exterior materials, uh, cast in resins, cast in uh, fiberglass. They um, have the ability to create and craft just about any item that we may need from, uh, oh, from archways to exterior blocks to, uh, in, in one case, we're doing a, a very modern interpretation of a groin vault in a lobby that's going to be cast in about six pieces. So having that roster of tradesmen uh, is important to us. Um, I, I will say, however, that you know we recognize that we can't hold those people closely to our hearts and just use them exclusively because the opportunity to use them exclusively um, is only going to come up through a job cycle. So we also do our best to share their abilities. We're not shy about uh, letting people know who we work with. Um, that's only going to benefit them, which is going to give us um, longer opportunities to work with them, we would hope. But it's also going to benefit the design community as a whole. We're, um, we're very open about all of that. We, uh, we feel strongly that what's good for our uh, fellow designers is good for us. We've spoken about materials and a little bit about material in innovation and the craftsman. I was just wondering about how demanding your customers are when it comes to the materials they choose and issues around um, sustainability and the environment. Oh, well, that... Um... I'm going to I'm going to say that uh, again we're in a little bit of a unique situation with that. Um, I'll use two examples. I have uh, one development team uh, here in Toronto that is building a, a series of towers uh, in the north end of the city. Um, they they've got uh, well we've got one two three uh, we've got eight towers on the go with them. Um, and they are very, very um, involved in having uh, lead points. They want to uh, say with pride and with confidence that the materials that are used in their building and the design sensibilities that are taking place um, all have, uh, whenever possible, recyclable materials. They have uh, materials that are done from a sustainable point of view, the stuff that is created is not harming the environment. It has um, lead pedigree. Uh, and, and that's an example of a developer who's building, you know, um, thousands of units. At the other end of the spectrum, I have uh, a delightful couple who are uh, redoing their home of many years. It's a large home. It's it's probably 12,000 square feet, so it's a good size. And uh, they're very conscious as well. And they're conscious of uh, the materials used from not only just a sustainability point of view, but from a natural point of view. They want no materials that are not natural. So, for example, uh, wool is one of our prime materials, linens. Um, 
uh, organic cottons, uh, hemp, important. Natural stones are important to them. Um, all of those items need to be not artificial. So um, that's a, a, a different look at how they want to live in their environment versus the towers. So as designers, we, um, we can't just be specific. We have to be generalists. We're constantly challenged with staying aware, staying updated, uh, being innovative in our usage of materials, but knowing where those materials come from. So as well as understanding on the commercial side of things, what can be used and meet code requirements, we're also challenged regularly to provide certification for lead and environmentally friendly products, things that are from recycled, uh, things that can be recycled, things that um, have a timeline cycle and can be returned through after a period of time. So yes, that's that's an important consideration from for us on a day-to-day -day basis. We can't just can't say, oh gosh, this is going to be hand-watered silk on those draperies. It, it's not as simple as that. It's not as simple as just picking something because it's uh, it's pretty or it's appropriate uh, to the design. We have to look at it from the nature of the appropriateness of it to fit into the overall requirements. Yeah, and that's interesting because, I mean, more and more blockchain is becoming important. So not only that things are natural, but also the origin. So being able to trace them back you know, I'm doing a project with Harris Tweed, for example, mm -hmm. and we are looking at, we're going back to the origin of the wool. So, yeah, you know, right. where the sheep are, the type of fleece that it produces, the journey the fleece goes through um, before it gets to the mill to be spun and then off to the, to the weaver to be woven. And customers that we're dealing with are so much more in tune than they were even a year ago or two years ago definitely in terms of their their demands i was just wondering if that's if that's an area of interest um to you as well as for your clients just this idea of being able to go back um to origin well it is um it's very important to many of our clients not all um but you're you're quite right uh, you, you said something important um that even a year ago you know, you, you didn't see that awareness with your clientele. Um, in the past decade, I think there's been a greater awareness of design to the general public. And whether that's um, because of the prevalence of the design shows, whether that's the prevalence of um, design materials online, uh, in print, uh, or just a general awareness and an opening up of the, the global view and market, um, I, I don't know. But there is now a greater awareness. And with that awareness comes the opportunity to educate, um, to investigate, to explore just that. As you said, I find that fascinating of... Um, you know, where is this wool coming from? Uh, where are these sheep being kept? What are they being fed? You know, is this truly an organic uh, uh, product? 
um, you know, is, is the, is the grass they're eating, uh, you know, fertilized in some fashion or, you know, what, what is the, what is the nature? How, um, how special is that wool? And, and that's just wool. You could do that from, uh, as I said earlier, cotton, you know, organically grown cotton. Um, what does that mean for uh, usage? What does that mean for wearability? What does that mean um, for the cost to produce it? What's involved? And, th- and those are deeper questions that people are asking. You know, how, d- how do we live in, um, in a society, in a world that's undergoing, you know, clear climate change? You, you've got this massive thunderstorm going on. Uh, behind you right now that's uh, that's unusual and and those are things that are happening around the world regularly they're unusual and what's causing that well um is it that sheep that's uh, eating grass in the field so that we can produce fine wool these are big ethical questions and um i don't think we can resolve those we can only be mindful of them and and be aware and uh, and educate our clients um as I said earlier, anything can be luxury, but uh, it comes with some responsibility. Mm. Yeah, indeed, it does. And thinking about responsibility, what I mean, and this is not being responsible. What is the most unusual <laughs> request you've had from one of your clients? Oh gosh, oh unusual request, and it's only ten o'clock. Um, do you know something? There's they're often unusual requests. Um, hmm. I'm just trying to think of the latest one is is uh, oh is is creating an environment where um, where we have a a, a, a gentleman who can uh, uh, have a a showroom that's not going to just uh, accommodate his vehicles and his friends when they come over but also his helicopter. So um, that's probably on the, the top 10 list of unusual requirements. Um, the, the other one would be maybe a, uh, a, a lair where we have a, a hidden wall on a panel. And when you, when you step into the games room, the backdrop is the, uh, the outdoor swimming pool um, from underneath, below, you're underwater. <laughs> so... You know, the unusual is is uh, is an unusual word. I, I I could, gosh, they're all unusual. You know, that's part of the fun. <laughs> well, exactly, and that you know, you've I suppose it's also being fortunate to be in that environment where you have these demands of clients that are slightly um, offbeat because uh, you know it it en- enhances the kind of creativity in in uh, in approaching the design of a of a place well it does and and you know i have to emphasize something um it's got to be fun fun creates creativity no absolutely i wanted to uh end as i always do and ask you i mean we've spoken a lot about your des- your approach to design you know materials customers craft craftsmanship and i just wondered i wondered what your luxury would be well Yes, isn't that interesting? Um, you know, luxury for me is uh, is indeed space. It's volume, um, not feeling cramped, having light, but um, maybe most importantly, um, 
I'll, I'll take a page out of Jade Mountain and, and say that sanctuary, peace, um, uncomplicated space, somewhere to relax, that's luxury. And uh, we're fortunate to, to have the option to do that for many of our clients, create a sanctuary, create a meditation space, create a retreat somewhere where they can get away, even if it's for 15 minutes, from the day-to-day -day incessant sounds. So for me, luxury is indeed that, um, creating a sanctuary, having a sanctuary. Brian Woodrow, thank you so much for joining us um, on the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast. You're very welcome, Sean. I appreciate it, and I enjoyed this. I hope we can do it again sometime. Thank you so much to Brian for joining us. Thank you to our partners, Intellect Books, to you for listening. And don't forget, you can listen to all previous recordings of the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast on your favorite listening channel. Join us next time on the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast.